You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 478, flashback. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we look way back, inserting ourselves into an episode of Star Trek to see if we can walk away of the moral or two and seeing if the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, flashback. The one where Tuvok needs Janeway's help, rescuing him from a repressed memory that just won't go away. This week, flashback. The one where Tuvok needs Janeway's help, rescuing him from a repressed memory that just won't go away. Wait, wait, John, what are you doing? I mean, I already said that. We're done with that part of the intro. Um, no, I I don't remember that. Uh, I tell you what, I'll check the playback while you tell everyone how to contact us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, and please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Rod and Barry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. Just as soon as you tell everyone how to reach us. I already did. Hmm. Yeah, still don't remember that bit, but uh, all right, if you say so. Flashback was written by Brandon Braga, but the seed of the premise had already been floating around for a while. While Brandon really created the majority of the story, there is an uncredited contributor, Julianne Medina. Julianne is a fan, and her story, Bridge of Size, was a piece of Voyager fan fiction that got her in the door to pitch. While the story does have to do with memory, it isn't quite what ended up on screen, but you can still find the original publication in the Kate Mulgrew Appreciation Society newsletter called Now Voyager, Volume 2, Issue 3. They ran it after Julian had already successfully pitched, but before the episode aired. It was directed by David Livingston, and David's job here really was to try to match the existing footage from Star Trek VI. Almost all the bridge scenes of the Excelsior were new, but of course he was able to use the existing exteriors and effect shots of the ship and the nebula. Now, the episode ran short. David kept the pacing pretty tight. Uh, Ran short by about five full minutes, so they had to create filler at the last minute. Specifically, uh, one of those was that scene with Kess in Tuvok's quarters. That was added. Notice how they keep the pacing in there pretty slow. This was, of course, the 30th anniversary of Star Trek and five years after the release of Star Trek VI. 
Now, the production knew that DS9 were working on their own 30th anniversary episode. That would be Trials and Tribulations. But it would air in November of 96, whereas this one ran in September of 96, just three days after that magic uh, September 8th Star Trek Day date. Also, in the original Trouble with Tribbles, it is worth noting that Sulu and Rand don't appear, which means that they are the only two regular cast members of TOS not to appear in DS9's tribute. And this became a, well, a thoughtful way to incorporate everyone as this milestone anniversary occurred. Now, about those recreations, the Excelsior Bridge had to be almost completely rebuilt. The helm console still existed, as did the view screen and a small portion of a wall, but that was about it. And what took Star Trek VI's crew three months to build had to be done in about two weeks for television, and they pulled it off only by cutting a few corners. What's more impressive... They built the entire set in 360 degrees, not just a partial to be filled in with blue screen. On top of that, Mike and Denise Akuda went to the extra trouble of lining up the animations on the bridge monitors with what was seen in the movie for the right timing. Let's talk about our guest stars. Well, it's hard to miss George Takei returning here as Captain Sulu, and of course the late Grace Lee Whitney in her last screen appearance as now Lieutenant Commander Rand. We also have a returning classic Klingon with uh, Michael Ansara, who appeared as Kang in the TOS episode The Day of the Dove and the DS9 episode Blood Oath two years before Flashback aired. Casting took it a step further, though, and tracked down people who were on the bridge of the Excelsior in Star Trek VI. The helmsman, Lojur, was played by Boris Krutenog in both instances, and we spend more time in this episode getting to know Lieutenant Commander Dmitry Valtain, played again by Jeremy Roberts. He has worked pretty consistently since the mid-'80s on a variety of TV guest roles and features— And this isn't the only role he's had in Star Trek. He was unrecognizable under Jim Hadar makeup in DS9's fourth season in the episode Hippocratic Oath. Finally, there is one guest star that we're missing. Throughout development of this script, Brannon had in mind to include Uhura in a sequence from the Enterprise communicating with Excelsior. It would have been very cool. But at the time, the production and Nichelle, despite George's urging, couldn't come to an agreement. And only days before filming, her scenes were cut from the script. I am confused. I've seen this one before, but where are the actors from Sex and the City, or Roots, or The Sound of Music, or That 70s Show, or Max Headroom, or Time Bandits? Where's David Bowie's wife? Prologue. In the mess hall, Neelix persuades Tuvok to try his newest breakfast juice blend, which is met with a very promising impressive by the Vulcan. Using that affirmation to cook the rest of Tuvok's breakfast, cooking and story time with Neelix is cut short, much to Tuvok's delight, as a surprise energy surge causes Neelix's stovetop to flare up, reducing his porican egg omelet to ashes. 
Chuvak believes the plasma conduit surge due to a new energy source was the cause, as Captain Janeway summons both he and Neelix to the bridge. As Voyager analyzes a distant nebula, Captain Janeway informs her crew of both good and bad news. Bad news first. Neelix will have to empty out his pantry. The good news is because they will need that extra space to store ceruleum gas, which will soon be mined from the nearby nebula. Everyone on the bridge seems to have a handout for this energy source. Everyone except for Tuvok, whose own hand started to shake strangely and tells Janeway that he is unwell and asks permission to go to sickbay. On his way, he is suddenly overwhelmed by a flashback of himself as a boy and unable to save a young girl from plummeting to her death. That memory is so powerful that once he reaches sickbay, he collapses right in front of Kess. Act 1. Tuvok describes this memory in greater detail to the doctor and to Captain Janeway. He is puzzled that he has no recollection of ever being traumatized by this memory of watching this unknown young girl fall to her death. And even after the doctor's laundry list of how this possibly could have happened from telepathic communication from another race to a parallel reality, one thing is certain. This was concerning enough for the doctor to require Tuvok to wear a neurocortical monitor so that the doctor can monitor Tuvok's health in the event of another attack. Later in his quarters, Kess checks in on Tuvok to see how he's doing and to make adjustments to his monitor. It appears that Tuvok was in the middle of a meditative exercise using Kithara blocks in order to help restore a sense of logic and harmony. And even though she is there to help, Tuvok appears distracted, and Kess takes her leave knowing that he needs to focus on himself. The next day, on their way to engineering, Tuvok informs Chakotay that he spent 14 hours in deep meditation, but to no avail. Chakotay tries to be supportive, but when they reach engineering, Tuvok strangely advises Harry to sweep the nebula for any cloaked Klingon vessels. Knowing he is still being affected by disjointed and unfocused thoughts, Tuvok is once again seized by the flashback as Chakotay catches him before he falls to the ground. The doctor believes the problem is linked to a Vulcan memory disorder caused by Tolokan schism, and the only way to save Tuvok is to purge the repressed memory using the mind melt. Tuvok trusts only Janeway with this most personally intrusive procedure, and when they meld, instead of experiencing the memory in question, they instead find themselves on the bridge of a starship in the chaos of battle as Captain Hikaru Sulu emerges from a cloud of smoke. Act 2 It appears that Tuvok's subconscious has decided to bring him and Janeway to this moment of Tuvok's past instead. He tells Janeway that it is 80 years ago, that he is serving on the USS Excelsior, and that the battle with the Klingons they are currently experiencing actually happened three days earlier. Cut to three days earlier. Tuvok is preparing tea for Captain Sulo in the crew's quarters while Commander Janice Rand ribs him about bucking for a promotion. Janeway jealously remarks to Tuvok, You've never brought me tea. Later on the bridge, Captain Sulu enjoys Tuvok's special blend, teases him a bit about sucking up for promotion, and basically tells Tuvok to relax and enjoy a joke every once in a while. When Tuvok returns to his station, he catches Janeway up on some personal history. Tuvok is 29 and serving on the Excelsior, which will eventually be an important factor in the upcoming Federation Klingon peace talks after a specific series of events, starting with the explosion of the Klingon moon Praxis and soon to be followed up by his energy wave engulfing the Excelsior, which triggers the rescue attempt by Captain Sulu, who will set course to save two officers of whom he is fiercely loyal, James Kirk 
and Leonard McCoy. Chuvak overtly and publicly disagrees with Captain Sulu's defiance of the regulations. However, a very patient Captain Sulu extols what he believes are the virtues of serving on a starship, service, sacrifice, and forging familial bonds with those which whom you serve. In other words, let the regulations be damned. And with that understood, the Excelsior is then ordered into the Azure Nebula on its way to rescue Kirk and McCoy. Tuvok then suffers another panic attack at the sight of the nebula and breaks the meld with Captain Janeway, but not before seeing Tuvok's repressed memory. Act 3. As Tuvok lies unconscious in sickbay, the doctor informs Janeway that Tuvok's condition is worsening and that brain death is definitely possible if nothing can be done about the repressed memory. Later, in the captain's ready room, Harry provides some data which proves that the nebula they are currently studying for their new ceruleum energy source is similar to, but definitely not the same as your nebula that Tuvok encountered on the Excelsior 80 years ago, which hampers Janeway's investigation to any connection with Tuvok's experience on the Excelsior in Sulu's time, an era of Starfleet in which both she and Harry look fondly upon with a healthy sense of history and nostalgia. After Tuvok is safely revived, both he and Captain Janeway re-engage the mind meld and return to the exact time as before, of which both he and Janeway can no longer dismiss as coincidence. Janeway believes that if they go back further to when Tuvok first saw the nebula, that may hold some answers. When he does, he finds himself in his crew quarters and having a deeply philosophical disagreement with his fellow officer, Dimitri Valtain. Dimitri romanticizes Captain Sulu's desire to rescue Kirk and McCoy, and Tuvok is unable to understand the emotional illogic of such a decision. In fact, it was Tuvok's distaste with Starfleet's heavy human bias which caused him to resign his commission. But after confessing to Janeway that after a series of events which led him to Colinar, then to creating a family with Tapel after being so deeply affected by the Pond Far, he had a far greater appreciation of why his own parents pushed him so hard to join Starfleet, because it was only so he could gain a greater appreciation of the galaxy. However, his reminiscing is suddenly cut short by a red alert calling all hands to battle station, as Tuvok remembers being fired upon by a Klingon battlecruiser that decloaked inside the nebula. Act 4 as the Klingon battlecruiser looms largely in front of the Excelsior, Captain Sulu is hailed by its commander, Kang, who congratulates Sulu on his well-deserved captaincy. After pleasantries are dispensed, Sulu explains that Excelsior got lost in the nebula during a routine survey mission. Kang graciously offers to escort Excelsior back into the safety of Federation space. However, knowing that he's running out of time to save Kirk and McCoy, Sulu needs to escape without destroying Kang or his ship. He turns to junior science officer Tuvok, who informs Sulu that the nebula is composed of several gases, one of which is ceruleum, which Sulu knows is combustible, and orders Tuvok to light the proverbial match by firing a positron beam at Kang's ship, igniting the ceruleum, and disabling the battlecruiser, which is now unable to give chase. However, after clearing the nebula, Excelsior is immediately fired upon by an additional three Klingon battlecruisers, and after being hit by volley after volley of photon torpedoes, Tuvok warns Dimitri that a plasma conduit behind his console is ruptured, but Dimitri doesn't leave his post and is killed by this exploding station. Tuvok and Janeway find themselves exactly in the same location and position as both of their initial mind-meld experiences as Tuvok kneels next to Dimitri and once again is seized by the memory of the falling girl. But this time, something is different, especially in the outside world, as the doctor's monitors inform him that Tuvok's synaptic patterns are now destabilizing at an alarming rate and that the mind meld has locked Tuvok and Janeway together. 
Even Tuvok knows that something has gone awry with the meld, which is made instantly apparent as Sulu can now actually see Janeway on his bridge. Act 5. Captain Sulu has security escort both Janeway and Tuvok off the bridge. However, Tuvok can feel a certain fluidity in his memory, allowing him to return them to a time when they are able to subdue Commander Rand and steal her uniform so that Janeway can disguise herself to remain inconspicuous on the bridge. Finally, Tuvok returns them both to that one singular moment in time, the moment and memory when Dimitri was killed. Knowing that time is running out, the doctor has no choice but to apply a cortical stimulator on Tuvok so that he can bring him out of the mind meld using small doses of Thoron radiation. And, as the treatment begins, the doctor is startled to discover a third and completely different memory engram amidst Tuvok's and Janeway's. While the Thoron treatment continues, Janeway observes a chaotic fluctuation between Tuvok's Excelsior memories to him as that helpless boy on the precipice to then seeing herself as a child in Tuvok's place, also failing to save the young girl from falling to her death. The doctor isolates this third engram as being a virus, jumping from Tuvok to Janeway in order to survive. But the Thoron radiation is too strong for the virus, and in its last attempts to survive, it cycles through dozens of scenarios of children unable to save the young girl from falling to her death. After Janeway and Tuvok are safely separated from their mind meld, the doctor informs him that the virus survived as an embedded memory, and Tuvok then realizes when Dimitri was dying, the virus jumped and lay dormant in Tuvok's memory until he saw the similar nebula. The doctor even posited that it is possible that the little girl may never have existed at all and was just a construct to allow the virus to survive this entire time. When all was said and done, Tuvok did sum up a bit of history for Janeway, that Captain Sulu and the Excelsior were able to play a pivotal role at the Battle of Kittimer alongside Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. And even though he himself is not nostalgic of those times in his career, he knows that Captain Janeway can be nostalgic for the both of them. The end. Thank you, Norman, for taking us back to those heady days of life aboard the Excelsior. The heady days of the 23rd century. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Such nostalgia for that time. Mm -hmm. But let's start where the show starts, uh, firmly in the Delta Quadrant. And it's, you know, just a nice little scene at breakfast in the mess hall. And there's Neelix pouring some juice for Tuvok. Now, here's a funny thing. He says anthratic citrus peel orange juice but in the captioning yes it's anthraxic and i thought my god he's trying to poison tuvok <laughs> has it come to this already i saw the same thing in the caption i'm like what is orange anthrax <laughs> <laughs> and does this sound delicious to anyone and, uh, right. I, I would think not. I mean, it sounds deadly. Right. Uh, maybe Tuvok was right to be skeptical. But I love I love just giving that scene a little time, giving a little moment, and that stare down. Yeah. That stare down between Tuvok and Neelix <laughs> was perfection. Mm-hmm. And I do have to – look, I, I hand it to Neelix because I'm firmly in Team Neelix about this. He says, on Talex, it's a tradition to share the history of a meal before you begin eating. I love that. I'm I'm the food nerd who wants to know where things came from and what the story is behind it. Tuvok, kind of a buzzkill uh, if he's just not interested. That's a weird thing. I don't think that like Vulcans derive the kind of pleasure out of meals that say humans do, like we do. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morris, At least they're not. They'll never admit it. More is the pity. Yeah. 
the vultures are circling. I love that. I thought that was a great line. It was delivered well by you know by Robert and when they were talking about the the cerulean gas. Everyone's looking for a handout, right? Well, I could use it for this. Yeah. I could use it for this. I could use it for this. I thought that was really funny. Right. Yeah, yeah it was a nice bit. Uh, since you love to point out time codes at four fifteen early in the show, I love the handheld camera in the turbo lift. We get yeah. a full three sixty of the turbo lift. Very cool. It's um, you know David Livingston and his DP just being creative with the license an episode like this allows you. That must have been really tight, though. Toit, you know. Toit, ah, absolutely. You know, yeah. in there yeah. doing that circular scene. Yeah. I admit, like, usually when the, you know, the post-opening credits, like, roll, you know, you kind of, like, watch them. You're like, okay, okay, okay. Then you get to the big guest star. But this is one of those times because of the nature of this episode where – I got a little kind of misty-eyed nostalgic. I'm like, oh, there's Aww. Grace Lee Whitney's name. There's Michael and Sarah's yeah. name. There's George K's name. I'm like, these are the characters. You know, these are the actors that, you know, are, are part of my favorite, you know, series, era of Star Trek. So seeing yeah. them on credit again was really nice to see. Yeah, love that. Question to you, John. Question to everyone out mm-hmm. there. And Unless my memory isn't serving me correctly, is it ever bright, ever, in Tuvok's <laughs> quarters? Like, is there ever a light on? It's like, it's always dark. Or candlelit in his quarters. I think the brightest we ever got it was that nice purple on purple tone where he had the purple robe and he had the purple lighting in the room. I think that was about uh, right. the brightest we ever got. Yeah. Otherwise, they have to fly by a sun to uh, to brighten that. Was it a sun. haze of purple? It, it could have been. Okay. It could have been a purple haze. Yeah. By the way, speaking of it being dark in there, the, he has this line that he says to uh, Chakotay the next morning, I spent 14 hours last night in deep meditation. How long is night on Voyager? <laughs> Come on, dude. Like, I don't know how long your duty shifts are. I don't know how much uh, recreation time you get, how much personal time. But 14 hours, one night? Yeah. That's impressive. Did they yeah. adopt uh, Deep Space Nine's 26-hour day? <laughs> Maybe they did. You know? <laughs> Maybe that's it. It's, uh, yeah, 13 hours of day with 14 hours. Or, sorry, 12, yeah, 12 hours, hours of day with 14 hours of night. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, John, so this next one's for you or for anyone who's playing the home game. The doctor mm-hmm. mentions that the affliction plaguing Tuvok or what Tuvok is suffering from is called a Tolokan schism. 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 Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for dropping that in there. Much appreciated. So here's an interesting thing, and it, it kind of ties into six, uh, Star Trek Six. But mm-hmm. Tuvok, when he mind melds with Janeway, he does the, the double hand technique. Oh, yeah. And I think he's done the double hand technique this entire time that I've seen him do mind melds, like in the episode meld with Lon Suter. What is it about the double hand technique now, like with Vulcan mind melds? I mean, you know, in six, it was done in a very aggressive, violating yeah. kind of way to obviously to achieve a certain goal to get to extract information from Valeris. Yeah. But now it's that standard. I miss like. Correct me if I'm wrong, John, but I remember when Spock did it the first time, he did it so that he could feel with one hand, he could feel a special individual connection with someone through different nerve endings and different connections with his hand. Right. Right. Yeah. And I kind of always wondered, like, did it matter with species? But we've seen plenty of one-handed mind melds with humans as well. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know if there's any real rhyme or reason to it. I don't know if there's a, a, an in-canon rule about it. Let's talk about something that rules, though, and that is Sulu's heroic entrance. Oh, yeah. That, that was shot spectacularly well with the lighting and the smoke coming out. Also, uh, very important time code, 1935, 
space teapot. Very important to see that thing in all of its glory. Was it when, when Tuvok was making the tea with mm-hmm. the space teapot? Yeah. Was it resting on one of those those kind of like those those tea carriers, like that wooden, like an ancient wooden tea? Yeah, it was like the, the wooden block yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. It was a whole thing. Yeah, that's it was right there in the middle of the room. Okay, okay. I thought, <laughs> I that's what it. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the special tea block on the special tea table. is just Everything is there for that. Gotcha. Yeah. To sell that mm-hmm. whole thing. I loved yep. Rand's 23rd century clipboard. It reminded mm-hmm. me of like the clipboard when she was you know, yeoman that she would hand to Captain Kirk for the captain's log. But it was so sophisticated now. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was a nice, nice little update there. Funny reference to Sulu's portrait at Starfleet Academy. I mean, how inaccurate could it be? <laughs> you know, right. like, like there are good likenesses of people done certainly without holographic technology, certainly without photographic technology. How bad could it be? I mean, Sulu looks like Sulu, but yeah, kind of a fun throwaway line there. Yeah. Now, I, I, I just I hate to obsess over this, but I have to go back to the space teapot for a moment. He's got it. Tuvok's got it on the bridge. He pours the tea for Sulu and then he walks over to the science station and he just puts it on the floor, like he just it just kind of disappears. Like, what do you? What happens to this teapot? Especially when they start to take hits from the outside. That the teapot is just a loose hazard now on the bridge. He just, I, I swear, he just put it on the floor. And now you know why Dimitri's plasma conduit ruptured. <gasps> oh my god! Oh, that brought it all together. Right? Yeah, that is tragic. Mm-hmm. I will say this: Excelsior looks wonderful in space and that bridge set i gave you the story about it in trivia it looks really good and i i really like how they made that look more professional and more comfortable after star trek 3 because in star trek 3 it looked like a joke but then by the time you see sulu in the captain's chair it looks cool again. Right. And it looked cool again in this episode. I mean, yeah. there, there was a huge kind of like design shift with, say, the the aesthetics from 2, which kind of informed the mm-hmm. bridge of 3, you know, when Sicking was in the chair and then you know, had Miguel Ferrer, you know, yep. as, as his yep. navigator. But then in 6, there was this huge shift, you know, with the L cars, with the darker mm-hmm. aesthetic, you know, with the industrial flooring. So, yeah, um, that was yeah. – yeah, it, it looked – it looked like where we should have been, and we finally got there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I have to be honest. I thought it was a little weird to watch, say, as good as David Lisington directed this and as good as they tried mm-hmm. to recreate the scenes from five years ago, it was a little strange to watch the reenactment of those scenes, uh, especially, you know, when the teacup hit the floor and then, you know, right. Sulu yells for shields, et cetera, et cetera. And especially when you're changing the ratio from, you know, 16-9 to 4-3. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just just to talk about a little bit of the technical stuff. Sure. Yeah. And that is one of those situations where like, okay, I think they use that insert of the teacup. I think that is directly from Star Trek Mm six. But then a lot of the shots that they had to recreate, you know, they tried to land when everybody sort of shakes and then hits the floor. They recreated those scenes and they tried to get people to land in exactly the same spot. But it it just shifts it because of that aspect ratio. You can't. can't do an exact recreation, and and those show uh, they they show their limitations. So anybody who's listening to this, if you didn't, it is kind of a cool experiment to go back and watch those scenes from Star Trek Six. I do like this line that uh, Janeway has uh, referring to 
the crews of the 23rd century, a different breed. Uh, imagine the era they lived in uh, and talking about the limitations they had. And I, I, I do appreciate it. Those times that Star Trek looks at its own history that way, its own internal history that way. It's just kind of a fun thing. We may come back to that in our uh, discussion. Uh, Timestamp for you. I have 26 minutes, 20 seconds. Janeway is drinking her coffee from a Picard-style glass mug and not her signature aluminum black-handled mug. Oh, that is a good point. Yeah, I wonder if the – Prop master rated some of the leftover stuff from next. Just gen. an interesting thing. It wasn't even like it was in plain sight. So I just like, hey, look, that's, yeah, that's yeah. not her mug. And Harry makes that reference. You know, no replicators, no holodecks. Yeah, except hey, remember that uh, that rec room on the Enterprise in the animated series? It was the closest thing we almost got to a holodeck before next gen. You so, could say they cool. went back to basics in a way. Oh, and, you know, we're not going back to basics. We're not going back to basics. Not over Macho Grande. Uh, okay. right. we, we did have a whole breach on Deck 12, Section 47, yep. for those of you playing the home game. And uh, I, question for you, the, the scene that they have in the bunks, it was kind of odd as it's a couple of grown men in a room where you would expect to see just way younger, like, training cadets. <laughs> it was just a little odd. To see them in there, especially because Dimitri is a uh, he's a lieutenant commander. Yeah, it's like it, you should have your own room at least. But I know we gotta put the dialogue somewhere. That just seemed like an odd place. Well, John, no replicators, no holodecks, no bunks for lieutenant commanders. You know, no right. right? I, and it was primitive as can be. I really loved just kind of like the subtle shade that was being kind of thrown uh, towards humanity's way from Tuvok. The human fascination with fun <laughs> has led to many tragedies in your short but violent history. One wonders how your race has survived having so much fun. Yeah. 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 That's some Vulcan shade the way we like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very interesting to fill in the biographical gaps here about Tuvok, that he left Starfleet for over 50 Years. So, first of all, kids, never too late to go back to school again. Mm -hmm. I do love that message here. But what I really like is that this is one of the few times that we have allowed the story to actually use the fact that Vulcans live much longer. Like, how would they use this time? Like, what what would that mean to them? Do they get to stop and restart a career? It is kind of an odd choice as an adult to go back, especially after having a wife and kids like that. That's a little bit of uh, maybe there's some interesting family discussions <laughs> to be had about Tuvok, though he is certainly so far a much better father than uh, some other Vulcans we could point to. Or Klingons. Uh, but, uh, or Klingons, for sure. But yeah, you know, it, it's always been kind of part of the Star Trek lore that Vulcans live longer, but we don't really explore that much other than kind of the convenience that, well, you have Sarek what in his 200th year at least when he meets picard but it really just serves a purpose to say that he is very old and he is very frail Mm -hmm. as opposed to this where you get to explore well what happens in the intervening years gotta say one of the budget cutting moves that star trek made once that i always hated was using the bird of prey for literally everything right when you've got this perfectly gorgeous Klingon battle cruiser right there, mm-hmm. and I am so glad to see Kang yes. in command of that ship yes. because I love that design. Yes, yeah. and I know that uh, he had a certain aesthetic for Blood Oath. 
I understand that he had to look a certain mm-hmm. way, but he really did look like the right look for, say, the uh, the Klingons that were, you know, obviously redesigned for the motion picture, you know, that Mark Leonard played, you know, originally in the motion picture. The, he looked correct, you know, in yeah. that look, yeah. uh, in that aesthetic. And, and that, by the way, that was a script note to point out that, hey, this Kang, he is the same guy. Right. And we do see him on DS9. He's got to look like a modern Klingon, but younger. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I thought he looked great. I, I, you yeah. know, here's the, here's the lovely thing about seeing that battle cruiser. So you have this, you know, and it's obviously modeled after what we saw in the motion picture, but you're right. We haven't seen that since the motion picture. And I think in the mm-hmm. continuity of the motion pictures era, it's the only time that, you know, we actually see it after the motion picture ever oh man i think you're right right wow oh that pains me mm-hmm. that pains me so much something that i know that was manufactured you know maybe for the reason of having this 30th anniversary show who doesn't love seeing like nostalgia collide you know on itself you know with the modern era i i think that if for anything i did love seeing captain janeway in a monster maroon but yes. not just a monster maroon. Like they even they they didn't fall into the trope of uh, swapping uniform and having that uniform fit. It was Rand's uniform. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney has a different body type than you know Kate Mulgrew has. So it was nice. It was kind of like falling off of her. It was too big, <laughs> but it, it was it was nice seeing Janeway in that uniform and letting those worlds collide. This is it. Sulu and Crew's last chances a group to lead us into the future. So, what do they have for us in flashback? Hey, we'll get right back to flashback after a word from this week's sponsor. And, and, Norman, and everybody Mm -hmm. else who's listening, a little update as of the day that this episode of Mission Log comes out. Uh, Guess what's right around the corner? Season 3 of Picard. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is right around the corner. Norman, if I were to ask you, what would be the proper pairing if I were sitting down to have a refreshing drink while I'm watching Star Trek Picard? What would you suggest? I would suggest, let's see, a bottle of Chateau Picard, obviously. Oh, themed appropriately. Yes. 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 From StarTrekWines.com. I, I think that's uh, about as good a suggestion as you can make. And what's cool is if you go to StarTrekWines.com, you've got three Chateau Picards to choose from. Now, you probably remember the original from season one of Picard, the 2386. We saw that on screen a lot. And then if you were paying very close attention to Strange New Worlds, you might have seen the 2221 label of Chateau Picard. And guess what? There is also the 2401 Silver Edition Chateau Picard from Season 2, Episode 1. They have made, I I, I mean, Norman, I don't know how how better to describe it, but they have made these props (laughs) that you see on screen, and now you can buy them and drink the wine. How cool is that? I mean, one of the things that we've always wanted, or for those of us of a certain age that have always wanted these collectibles that not only look the part but also taste the part these are probably the best type of synergy imaginable from product to prop and what better way to be able to celebrate 
the premiere and the opening of a new season. And this is going to be a very special season of of Picard. So let's do this in style. Yeah. And I think you, you hit it exactly right. It's not just that the bottles are gorgeous. It's not just that they are prop worthy. They are screen accurate because they are used on screen. It's that it's a high-quality wine as well. We'll talk about that again on another episode, but we're talking about a great wine to truly enjoy and savor while you're watching Picard or not, maybe just with friends and having a great meal. But the uh, Chateau Picard is something that you will for sure enjoy. And one other quick detail, as long as you're poking around at StarTrekWines.com and you might notice that very nice metal United Federation of Planets medallion, well, guess what? You can get it for free. That's right. If you add it to your cart and then you use our code Roddenberry at checkout, that becomes yours for free. And I've seen a lot of people put that on like a tumbler or, you know, a coffee mug, something like that. It is a great item to have. And again, you get it for free once you add it to your cart and add our code Roddenberry. So if you like Chateau Picard, if you would like to get a bottle or several to celebrate the premiere of Star Trek Picard season three, visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Ryzen Varietals, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion. Every now and then, Norm, some things come up in an episode that may not necessarily be what the episode is about. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not trying to make a statement about something, but it is a thread. It is an undercurrent. It is something that gets discussed. And... um, I I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole reading about repressed memories and repressed memory theory because that is the uh, – the MacGuffin here is the virus that hides in these repressed memories. And the the thing that I thought was interesting is is that the science on it is – well, murky at best. You know, the the science on it essentially says, hey, look – we're well aware that people consciously repress memories. Like this is a thing that we do because those memories may be very uncomfortable. Uh, they may be traumatic. And this is a coping mechanism uh, that we do as active participants in our memories and in our consciousness. And then sometimes those memories come back because they can't help but come back. What is less clear, what is much more debated, uh, what is in that gray area is this idea that there is a mechanism that the unconscious, using big kind of finger quotes for that, mm-hmm. the unconscious just sort of does this on its own, grabs a memory and just uh, uh, shuffles it away to this part of the brain that um, that you're not aware of, and it can sort of carry out bringing itself back or affecting conscious decisions. So I I wanted to bring it up only because it it is kind of kicked around in sickbay by the EMH a bit as, well, here are the reasons why these things are happening. Here's what the virus is doing. And of course, it is science fiction. We can say that the virus is doing whatever we want to (laughs) say it's doing, you know, but it is still one of those places that the the science is definitely not settled on it. And if we are trying to be very clear 
about what is understood, well, it, 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 you have to take everything with a grain of salt, let's say. Sure. And, you know, I think that if, if, if we actually had the opportunity to be able to live from now, like to the 24th century and kind of like watch the technology and the science evolve into understanding memory, that would be really a unique thing. But I think for right now, uh, at least with the the study that they've done so far medically, you know, and technologically in terms of, you know, memory understanding, it's so vague because there are so many things that trigger mm-hmm. memory. And in, in this case, it was, uh, you know, Tuvok seeing the Azure Nebula, you know, in the Delta Quadrant. And yes, it is a construct of the virus itself. But how many times, you know, I'm 50 years old. How many times can I like walk through a restaurant, you know, or walk through a mall or walk through down a sidewalk, smell something, hear something, hear somebody, and it triggers some type of a powerful event in your life that it almost brings you to tears and you don't know why. And and that is what's so fascinating to me because you're triggering that one spot. Like you got a couple of neurons talking to each other and, oh, there's that smell or there's that sound. The frustrating ones are the times that you you sort of get a sense of it, but you can't quite place the memory. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. can't quite put a name on it. (laughs) You know, I'll get that with uh, certainly with smells or food memories. And I think, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this thing, but then I can't quite place what that thing is. Like I couldn't go put my hands on it and say, oh yeah, this is exactly what it is. And to me, that is the fascinating thing about memory. And we've talked about it a few times before in Mission Logs past, which is that memory, and I'm sure that somebody is already hearing me formulate the words to say it because they're remembering it too, Mm -hmm. which is that memory is not a videotape that plays back in your head. When you remember something, you are actively creating that memory every single time. So even if it's a memory that you return to over years or decades, because maybe it's a pleasant memory, maybe it's a traumatic memory, whatever it is, it's not like going to a file vault, pulling that file and reading it again and the words stay the same or the pictures stay the same. It changes every time because you are actively creating that memory when you remember it. Right. And I think that's one of the coolest, most important, sometimes scariest things to remember because that's how those memories can get changed way easier than we want to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's yeah. also part of like the the human experience. Like there's there's the truth of the memory, there's the truth that you mm-hmm. believe that you remember, and then there's the experience that brings you to the truth of what you think you remember. Right? All of those yeah. different checks and balances filter that which you believe is the truth. So it's, yeah, it's a very powerful thing. And I don't think that because it's so signature, like a fingerprint or like a snowflake, I don't think that even the studies of memory can never be a hundred percent accurate because you can't chart uh, and you can't recreate the experience of so many different nuances, right? That, that forge not yeah. only the memory, but the recollection of that memory, Right. That, I think, is probably the most important thing. It's not that you can put it into some type of an equation, right, which has a control system that you can recreate over time because the control system is constant. It's never constant when it comes to memory, right? Right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something that happens in this episode that I I thought is such a a standout moment and really uh, uh, definitionally about these characters, which is Tuvok 
going young Tuvok mm-hmm. going right up to Sulu in the captain's chair. Sir, as a Starfleet officer, it is my duty to protest. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And Janeway is right. The Tuvok was right. I was a little surprised at Rand's response. It, it seemed a bit presumptuous of me for her to relieve him of duty. Like, I'm pretty sure that Sulu can handle himself here, and I'm not sure if that is the appropriate protocol that a lieutenant commander can decide to then just move an ensign off duty while he's having a conversation with the captain. Somebody can certainly correct me if I'm wrong there. I know that we had to work Rand into the scene, Mm -hmm. and that gives her a bit of authority. It gives her a little bit of a presence there. Uh, All that being said, Sulu's speech was so solid, and it was so Star Trek, (laughs) and it gives us all that lesson in loyalty. And I I just – what is more Star Trek than – you can hear Kirk saying the same words, let the regulations be damned. That's what we want out of our heroes. Whether it's the right thing – again, we could say sort of by – layers of protocol, whether it's the right thing or not, it is ethically, it is morally the right thing. It's what we want to see from our heroes, and it's certainly what we want to see from our heroes in Star Trek. Well, I mean, Kirk, eventually, I mean, he did say it, and I think that a lot of what Sula was saying was kind of lifted from a mock time when Kirk said, you know, that Spock has risked himself a dozen times over. Isn't that worth a career? Mm-hmm. Right. Or he's, yeah. he's risked himself for me a dozen times over. Isn't that worth a career? I think that there is a really interesting dichotomy between like the Star Trek of old and the Star Trek of new where and maybe that's what the, the message is here, where there is a certain type of stick to to the rules and regulations. But then there's there's the theoretical and there's the actual Right. You know, there's the theoretical of Mm. I'm going to devote myself to Starfleet. I'm going to devote myself to learning the regulations and following them because that is what a career officer does. That is essentially what a Vulcan does, you know, not to deviate from, you know, regulation, you know, 102.4.6.7, you know, like that to the nth degree. Right. That's what they do. But I think what Sulu was getting at, and and this is what Kirk was getting at uh, most of the time, is that you just can't follow regulations to the point of blind ignorance. You know, you have to follow what is what is called for at the time, whether it is violating the prime directive in order for a greater good, you know, because if you do, you still have to log that and still have to justify like why you did that. But at the same time, though, look at the consequences of the action, right? Look at the consequences of the decision. That's where this is so interesting about Tuvok. I mean, look, he's in Starfleet and then he takes a little break, little 50 year break and then comes back. And the few times that we've seen him in a command situation or a leadership situation, he hasn't really risen to the challenge. And I wonder if it is, I mean, it's certainly the opposite of Spock. Spock went through Kolinar, but had to stop himself before he got to the end of it and had to reconcile the human and Vulcan parts of himself, had to reconcile the idea that he couldn't be a whole person unless he embraced the emotional part of his being. Here's Tuvok, full Vulcan, went back to try to go through Kolinar, 
And I think he's missing this element of what makes a good leader, what makes a good commander, which is like you can't do everything simply by the numbers. Not everything is, as you were saying, not everything can be done as a formula. You actually have to work in the emotional components and the the humanistic components of what your command means. But I think that's where that this wonderful kind of dichotomy between him pursuing the culinar and then him mm-hmm. being interrupted by the pawn far, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. And, and the great and, right. and the great kind of like the, the economy between those two philosophies and probably the two most uh, stringent I've seen in, in Vulcan culture so far is you have the culinar, which is like this this uh, unyielding devotion to logic, right? To be able to purge yourself mm-hmm. from all emotion. But pawn far is such a primal urge to be able to do uh to, to mate that one time with that one person who's going to share you know, you're yeah. going to share your life with and this one's to pell and he chose that over you know culinar and he chose mm-hmm. to create this family and he chose to learn and i thought i thought it was wonderful that in in doing so in creating this family he became a more well-rounded person with a greater understanding of what it means to appreciate the world around you and to go out and, and to understand mm. like why his parents chose quote unquote forced him to join Starfleet so that he could have a better understanding of the universe. I know yeah. that's glossed over a lot in this episode, but it's very profound. You know, I, I think that it yeah. is incredibly important to see yeah. that growth. One of the things uh, though, I, I thought that was also incredibly profound, at least in terms of the Vulcan culture is Tuvok trusting Janeway in probably the most intimate of relationships. And that's mind melding with her in that way where she is, uh, or he is exposing her to his entire memory and vulnerability of that memory. Yeah. Now I I wanted to bring up something. Um, I did a little bit of research, did a little bit of a deep dive. I too went down that rabbit hole and uh, I'm going to (laughs) cite um, Paul Fagard, PhD, and, and okay. an article that I pulled from Psychology Today, uh, posted October 9th, 2018. And the topic mm. is, his hot thought, what is trust? Okay, mm. because Tuvok trusted Janeway with the mind meld and seeing into his past, right? He says trust in a, is an emotional brain state, not just an expectation of behavior. And I'm going to quote him on his article. In this article, Paul states that, quote, my forthcoming book, Mind Society, which has now been published by Oxford University Press in 2019, proposes that trust is a brain process that binds representations of self, other, situation, and emotion into a special pattern of neural firing called a semantic pointer. Emotions like trust and love are neural patterns that combine representations of the situation that the emotion is about appraisals of the relevance of the situation to goals, perceptions of psychological changes, and sometimes representations of the self that is having the emotion understanding trust through this specific emotional context does give the greater weight to Tuvok's emotional vulnerability. This is me now talking for choosing Janeway (laughs) as his most trusted non-family member on the ship or the closest family member he has on the ship. That's a very interesting idea when you really think about it. It's, it's associating trust and an emotion to a Vulcan. 
Well, all right. So here's the thing. I, I think absolutely if you were to try to corner Tuvok about this, Tuvok would talk your ear off about how trust is the logical result <laughs> of his logical decisions and experiences. But but I love because all it takes is a, a McCoy type to come along and say, no, 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 that's an emotion. Right. Come on. You know, are you out of your damn Vulcan mind? <laughs> it's, it's an emotion that you are feeling. You have a feeling that you can put your trust into this person. It may be earned over their years of experience together, but Vulcans all along having this simmering, seething pool of emotions that are just under the surface, they have to keep in check. Well, one of those that clearly they have to let out every now and then has to be this feeling of trust or else, well, they I, I think they would be completely frozen in their ability to do anything because trust is what allows cooperation. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't have that, how do you how do you build a society? How do you build families and friendships? And in a place like this, the the trust to keep people alive in a starship 70,000 light years from home. Well, I mean, bringing up trust again, and I, and I want to quote that's something that mm -hmm. Tuvok said. So Tuvok said, on the ship, I trust you more than anyone else. Okay, so mm -hmm. understanding what Dr. Thagard said about trust being an emotion, so doing the math, yeah. trust, i.e. emotion, i.e. he trusts Janeway, he has an emotional connection with Janeway, which is yeah. uh, more than anyone. Right, more than anyone, yeah. and it's kind of antithetical to yeah. what we understand about Vulcans. So I know that we've said before that it's not that Vulcans don't have emotions, it's they choose to either suppress yeah. them or not access them. So. This here is probably the most emotionally vulnerable that we've seen Tuvok admitting that not only, one, can he trust Janeway, but two, he trusts her implicitly enough to be able to see his, his the deepest, darkest parts of his own past, of his own memories, you know, in, in yeah. order for them to reconcile the situation. But what a fascinating concept that such an emotionally repressed race by design you know, has to lean into that kind of vulnerability in order to be able to move forward. With its final televised mission flown, does the last tale of NCC 2000 hold up decades after its first telling? Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry stretch Hang on. Sorry, I was just I was having a little flashback there. I apologize. I apologize. That was just as good as me yeah. doing the thing with the Hagemans. <laughs> but here we are at the uh, final act of our discussion of flashback. You're kicking off the uh, not only the third season of Voyager, but the 30th anniversary of Star Trek at the time that it was released. So a lot to unpack here and to discuss, really seeing if it stands up and if there are some morals, meanings, messages to be found. So Norman, tell me and tell our audience, does this episode hold up for you? Nostalgia is a really, really tricky thing. That's one way of putting it. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, nostalgia is a tricky yeah. thing. You know, because you never really know, like with nostalgia, whether or not a story stands on its own mm -hmm. or because it's really good and nostalgia is weaved into the, into the product and the end product, you know, in the way it's supposed to be used. Or if that product is afloat simply because the, the global nostalgia is keeping it afloat. And I think that... I think that flashback as an episode is more of that than, say, a, a, a strongly conceived story with nostalgia in it. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm sorry, I know that is probably going to upset some people because this is a big anniversary episode, but uh, allow me to explain myself. So I think the story is a bit convoluted, like when it comes to telling a, a purely narrative through line, mostly because I think you have like these, these legacy characters like Sulu and Rand and Kang, and they're on screen. And when they're on screen, you pay attention to them maybe more than you pay attention to the story. Mm. So sure. I mean, you know, for audiences of a certain generation like myself, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not going to speak for you, John, but I'm thinking maybe for yourself as well, you know, it's a thrill seeing like, and, and hearing names like Sulu, Rand, Kang, Spock, mm-hmm. McCoy, Kirk, right? The Excelsior, Kittimer. These are things that resonate with us in our fandom on a different level, as opposed to say details that weave a story, you know, into a, you know, and in, into a very quality product. Does nostalgia add to this episode as a whole, or does it attract? That's like the big question. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I think that it does hold up for the intent that it was created to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Star Trek, right? That's why this episode exists. And I do think that it does, pardon the pun, bridge, mm. you know, say Voyager's era with Star Trek Six's era. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both in universe and, you know, from the 24th century to the 23rd century and in real time from, say, 1996 back to 1991. There's a lot of charm in this episode. Yeah. I mean, this this episode is about that. It's about looking at the nostalgia uh, with those wonderful nostalgia-tinted glasses and say, yeah, what a great time. Even even that scene with Harry and and with Janeway, they're like, yeah, it was a different time. You know, the the, the Federation you know behaved differently. Starfleet captains behaved differently. I would have loved to have ridden shotgun with some of those captains. Sure, <laughs> right. why not? Right, yeah. because it was just different. I like that it created a side story with the Excelsior, where in Star Trek Six, you know, all of a sudden you have Sulu in the beginning, and you have. A, sh- a short portion with Sulu and uh, Ensign Christian Slater in the middle, and then you have the end, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But now you have this interesting story that's being weaved that becomes part of the canon. That's a nice little side story. I think that's great. I think that seeing Kang in there is fantastic. Okay, so this comes to kind of like my final conclusion about does this episode hold up? It was fun. Mm-hmm. It was kind of forgettable. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the biggest critique I can make about this episode it was this wonderful, delicious, huge heaping of empty calories. <laughs> but sometimes that's that's okay, right? That's it's just a very average episode. My biggest takeaway, yeah. and and maybe this may happen in the future. I really think that they should remaster this episode and package it with a 4K remastered Star Trek Six, oh, like the way that they did with yeah. you know um, Trials and Tribulations, yeah. as they remastered that to meet the quality standards of original series footage to today's footage. Yeah. So I I find nostalgia to be a very interesting thing when it's done well, it's done well. And when it's not done as well, it's still done well. It's like pizza. It's there's rarely (laughs) the ever get like terrible pizza. There's good pizza. There's excellent pizza. There's mediocre pizza. It's still pizza. Yeah. You know, it's still Star Trek. It still scratches an itch. I just wish it was a little bit more profound. That's all. Sure. Yeah. I'm pretty much you? on the same page as you. Um, 
from a production point of view, you have this age-old problem that Star Trek faces the longer it goes on. You know, there's only so many stories to tell. So how do you do, say, a holodeck episode without doing another holodeck episode? Or in this case, how do you do a time travel episode without doing time travel? So you have to invent mm -hmm. the back door to go tell the story you really want to tell. And I, that's okay a at a certain point. I And I hope that most people, you don't really care what the premise is to get us into the story because Star Trek already asks you to swallow a lot of, you know, kind of fun, nonsensical sci-fi <laughs> ideas just to get you to the entry point to tell the story. So really, the, the premise here, the brain virus that's making – Tuvok experience these memories. It's just an excuse to get us where we actually need to be. And where we actually need to be is just kind of an excuse to hang out with our beloved crew. And that's really what this is. It is that 30th anniversary attempt to say, hey, we didn't forget everybody who was part of TOS. Rand was gone from TOS by season two. Sulu was not in Trials and Tribulations. We got to work them in somehow. Here's this sort of side door to be able to tell their story and tie it into a much-beloved movie, which is fine. I'm glad to see that as a, as a footnote to Star Trek VI, just to get a little bit more of what they were doing. But here's sort of where it ranks. And I, and I don't like to do rankings on our show. I don't like to do rankings on Mission Log because that's really not what we're about. We're just about the idea of an episode. But you take something like Relics, and I think Relics did this job very poorly. And then you mm. take Trials and Tribulations, and it did this thing extremely well. It had all the sense of fun, all the sense of discovery within that episode. And this one is just sort of in between. And because it's just sort of in between, it's hard to have a really strong feeling about it. So I, I, I don't want to say that it doesn't hold up. It holds up in this sort of interesting academic way that if you're a fan of Star Trek VI, there's this little extra bit of the story to gain. But I think about an audience in 1996 watching this who may very well have only discovered Star Trek because of TNG and DS9, and now they want to go off on this new adventure with the crew of Voyager, and they may not know or care necessarily that deeply about what happened in a movie that was five years old featuring characters that are now 30 years old. That part of it wasn't compelling enough to get me interested in that. I, look, Rand, and this is not, please don't take this as a slight. <laughs> I think Rand is just okay here. I, I don't think she's that great or that much of a standout. I do think Sulu is great. I think just if you're looking at this episode as how strong are the guest stars who really have to take a pretty heavy load carrying this show, I think Sulu's great, and I think he does that very well. George, as Sulu, does that very well. And I honestly, I get it. I get the idea that he then could look at this as the potential backdoor pilot to his own show or a miniseries or something. I'm a little bummed we didn't get that because if this episode does anything well, it does that. It shows that he's pretty commanding 
and good in that role. As much as I am a fan of Star Trek VI and as much as I am a fan of Voyager, I can't say that I'm a fan of this episode. I give them an A for effort because they got the gang back together and they recreated yeah. the sets and they did all of those things that fire all the nostalgic buttons. But is that enough? Um, as you said, nostalgia can only carry things so far. It, it can't. And, and look, right? and, and Star Trek now, as we are recording this in 2023, has a nostalgia problem. And Star Trek in 1996 had a nostalgia problem. And somewhere along the lines, we've got to figure out a way to – we, putting on the writer's hats here, we've got to find a way to write ourselves out of that nostalgia problem instead of trying to connect every dot and shoehorn every character into every crevice. Because that very often happens at the expense of telling new, bold, interesting stories with characters who can carry that on their own. So I, I hate to sound like a downer on this. I can really appreciate the episode for the the creativity of recreating these scenes, recreating these sets, getting our characters from Voyager in there kind of ham-fistedly. <laughs> but I don't know that this is an episode I would necessarily want to go back and rewatch. Yeah, I mean, like, Tim was there for, like, seconds, literally, mm -hmm. you know, in that scene, you know, the opening sequence of Star Trek VI. Uh, oh, no, he's... Is it enough to he, be... He's in uh, Generations. He's... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Generations. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. in Generations. So they, 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 they're they bending the, the canon a little bit to get him here on the Excelsior. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, well, he, he, you know, he, he probably was on the ship before he ended up where he was in Generations. Even though it's not the same character, right. it is the same actor. So... Right, I mean, because yeah, the yeah, B is, yeah. quote, unquote, Excelsior class. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're we're just sort of we're we're bending it. We're letting the audience fill in the the dots there a little. That that's okay. That's all right. But but then I, I guess my ambivalence about this episode, my disappointment in this episode, brings me to the morals, meanings, messages. Because anytime you do an episode like this, you have to ask why are they telling this story and why are they telling it now. And this is just the demand of the production. We're telling this story now because it's the 30th anniversary and we're going to get an episode on the air to celebrate Star Trek's 30th anniversary and promote that. And, I, you know, what a Janeway's lines is what I had in my head. She goes, what does all of this have to do with the girl on the precipice? And I'm like, yeah, I have the same <laughs> question. What does all of yeah. this have to do with anything? It, it really is just a way to get us into the story. So is there a point? Is there a point yeah. other than just filling in storytelling gaps, which sometimes could be fun and creative and clever, but very often just plays as a way of pandering to an audience? Oh, look, we filled in this gap for you. Nostalgia is a tricky thing. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug. And even though Tuvok says he doesn't experience nostalgia, he is pleased that he was a part of those days, and Janeway can be nostalgic for both of them. That That is also telling the audience, you get to be nostalgic for all of us. It's a little True. on the nose, you know? I am interested in this conversation that we had in the last segment about memory. It, it, memory is a tricky thing. 
if it was a real event, it's been buried and copied and twisted so many times, there's no way to tell what really happened. That's what the EMH says about that, about the, the girl on the precipice. And, you know, just looking at it from this neurological point of view, that's that's everything in memory. Everything in memory gets buried and copied and twisted so many times because every time you recall it, you're creating it fresh. There is no right. way to tell what really happened. Is that a message of the episode? Well, no, it has to do specifically with the virus that is the MacGuffin here. But if it's an interesting point to ponder and you haven't heard me beat it to death already, then enjoy. <laughs> what about you, Norman, in looking at I mean, morals, fair, meanings, messages? That's a fair thing to say because you know, just earlier, I, I actually uh, – I haven't seen six or generations in some time. Mm-hmm. And I really mm-hmm. did believe from what I remembered that uh, that Tim Russ was there on the Excelsior for just like a second or two, you know, like right next to the actor who played Dimitri. Right, right. You know, it's, yeah. it's just what I remembered and, and – uh, that wasn't the case, but that's what memory does. Yeah. You know, yeah. in a strange roundabout way, I'm going to try and kind of like flip my own script and, and, and bring things home like, like on a little bit more of an optimistic message or a positive message. Okay. So I feel that this episode uh, from a moral means and uh, messages standpoint is about family. Hmm. You know, specifically the family that you find along the way. Mm-hmm. I've been getting a lot from Voyager, uh, and I think that that's where, you know, kind of like Sula was getting at with, with Tuvok. I'll get that in this, into a second. Tuvok chose Janeway to be his, quote-unquote, this pylora, this guide and counselor during the mind world, the mind meld. Mm-hmm. It took Tuvok a lifetime of experiences in order for him to get to this point with her. But it didn't start that way, as we saw in this exchange with Captain Sulu. Sulu said, you'll find more that it happens on the bridge of a starship than just carrying out orders and observing regulations. There is a sense of loyalty to the men and women you serve with, a sense of family. Those two men on trial, I served with them for a long time. I owe them my life a dozen times over, and right now they're in trouble, and I'm going to help them. Let the regulations be damned. Tuvok says, sir, that is a most illogical line of reasoning. And Sulu says, you better believe it. Helm, engage. Mm. When I was younger, I felt more like Tuvok. Maybe we all do when we're younger, when we think we know everything. You know, where order and discipline and structure were exacting and inflexible. And <laughs> believe me, this is where, like, my career goals were concerned. <laughs> but, you know, um, 30 <laughs> something years later, <laughs> right? I lean maybe a little bit more towards Sulu's philosophy and outlook on life. Mm. That it's worth taking risks for those who have given so much to you. Because you may not be sitting where you are now if it weren't for the risks that people in your life took for you. In other words, Sulu can enjoy that cup of hot tea now because at one time someone had to risk their life to try and get him that pot of hot coffee earlier. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Shoot.
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. The strangest thing just happened. I feel like I just ran a really old subroutine. Time to run a diagnostic. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.